Hello and welcome to the Podcast Studies Podcast. I'm Dario Linares and with me as usual is, of course, Laurie Beckstead. Laurie, how's it going? It's going really well. How are you? I'm good, thanks. Good, thanks. Yeah, looking forward to this conversation very much about your chapter and, of course, with uh, Hannah and Ian. Hello. Yes, it's us. We're here. (laughs) (laughs) We're back. By popular demand. (laughs) So... As our listeners may know, or they should know if they listened to the previous episode, we've just aired an episode of this podcast where Laurie subjected herself to an audio peer review process of her draft chapter for the book, Podcast Studies, Practice into Theory, Theory into Practice, which she and I are editing. So if you haven't heard that episode yet, I recommend you go back to listen to that before tuning into this one, because now we're going to do a little bit of an unpacking and reflection on how the peer review process actually went. So as you've heard there, Dr. Ian M. Cook and Dr. Anna McGregor are joining us. Just to recap, Ian is Director of Studies at the Open Learning Initiative in Budapest and a researcher at the Central European University. He's an anthropologist, multimodal scholar, and his research and praxis focus on urban India, environmental justice, higher education, and podcasting. And he is part of the Allegra Lab Editorial Collective. Hannah is an assistant professor of publishing at Simon Fraser University in Vancouver, where she mostly works on podcasting as a form of non-traditional scholarly communication, with a side hustle in critiquing systemic inequality in the Canadian publishing industry. She's the host of the Spoken Web podcast, the co-host of Which Please, and co-director of the Amplified Podcast Network. Welcome, everyone. Hey. Hello. (laughs) So... Let's have a talk about this last episode. So, Laurie, first of all, why did you want to have your chapter draft reviewed through this podcasting review process? Well, Daria, you and I have talked a lot about podcasting and scholarship and, uh, you know, our podcasts scholarly and can they be and can they be uh, used in, in a peer review situation? And so, Ian and Hannah and I are are working on a manuscript for a book about podcasting in peer review. And so we thought, well, we should do this and make it a bit of a case study in the book. Um, So here we are. And I was really excited about the opportunity to speak to people in depth about what I had written. I mean, it's, it's a real privilege to be able to do so. So a podcast really does afford that opportunity. Great. So maybe you could give us a, a quick summary about the the process as you've you know reflected on just having done it, particularly I suppose in terms of the the audio verbal aspect of it, rather than you know getting an anon- anonymous file saying mm-hmm. change this, change that. How was the the process? Yeah. Well, definitely. I mean, very different, right? Um, I mean, I think getting a a, a text based anonymous feedback has its place for sure because you can kind of receive it you can get angry about it initially if you have to and then you can kind of sit back on it go back and reread it and and react to it and take it in slowly and um i do intend to do the same thing with this verbal feedback in terms of maybe going back and and re-listening to it and checking the transcript for specific things but it was really interesting to react to it in the moment Um, And I think it changes how the feedback is given. Like, for example, um, I wrote I wrote this down. One thing that Ian said, you know, I said, okay, so what are some of the other holes or weaknesses in in the paper that that need to be improved? And Ian said, you know, I don't really want to identify the weaknesses per se, but rather I'd, I'd like to ask you some questions. And that for me was really interesting to hear that one of the reviewers kind of was almost seemed uncomfortable in, in saying like, here's a weakness. And I think in writing, I mean, I don't know if this is true, but I suspect just on a gut level that it's true that, that in writing it's when you're asked to identify weaknesses, you just go ahead and identify the weaknesses. Um, um, and, and, but in, in, in having this as a conversation, it was framed 
more like a question. But I also should point out that, that like, because Ian and, and Hannah and I are working on a book together, you know, we've had many Zoom meetings together where we're co-writing. And, um, you know, we have a really easy rapport, in my opinion. We have a lot of fun. We laugh a lot. I think that came out in the... In the yeah. Ian's, Ian and I are enemies, but we keep it light. shaking <laughs> his head, which makes me laugh, right? Here we go laughing again. Zoom's like this constantly. This is, it's amazing we get any writing done at all. So, um, yeah. So, I mean, it, it did make it less intimidating, of course. I mean, we're we're trying to explore a model here, I think, that perhaps other scholars could could utilize. But of course, I've made it easy on myself by inviting Ian and Hannah, these people that I know and trust to, to, but at the same time, they're obviously like super well qualified to be the reviewers on this. Uh, but yeah, those are some of my initial initial reactions to it. Yeah, cool. So, so on that, Hannah and, and Ian have both done peer reviews in different kinds of ways in relationship to to podcasting so maybe start with we can start with hannah what, what's your sort of overall perspective summary on on the experience of this process of peer review that you've just done yeah this was a little different from anything that i've done before um in the sense of just sitting down and saying our peer review is going to be the following conversation about your article and that is an activity that I've engaged with informally a lot with friends, right? That you will work, you will read a draft of something that they're working on and then you'll, you know, hop on a call with them or sit down with them and just talk it through. Just like, what are your arguments? How's that going? And so in some senses, it felt deeply natural to me to like sit down with a colleague who's researching in the same field as me and talk through a thing that they're working on and draw out different aspects of it and so it did feel like it was reproducing out loud, or I guess it's always out loud, reproducing on record another one of those sort of informal scholarly practices a lot of us have been engaging in all along anyway. And in other senses, it felt like it was, I don't know, both enhancing and missing pieces of the peer review process. Yeah, maybe... Exactly. I was thinking then when Hannah was talking that how it was to do it, it wasn't quite the conversation that you'd have with a peer or with a friend because Laurie was trying to push us into following uh, an order in the discussion which was laid out, which was the peer review template, which you've used in other parts of your book. But we sure. we we failed to do that because conversations are naturally more unwieldy than than that. And also because the way the questions were framed, now give us your strengths, now give the weaknesses, what's the quality of the writing, we haven't even got to that question, you know, how does it, you know, and so at some part, it's it, it, all, it all got like into conversations because we were riffing on each other's ideas because, you know, reviewer one and reviewer two were both there interacting with one another and that broke down the structure. So I imagine there's stuff missing, which we never got to because of that, because it was more conversational, whilst yeah. the, the benefits were that we could basically listen to one another and ask questions of Laurie and then really push on the idea dialogically, right? And uh, and so and so I guess we weren't as comprehensive as what we would have been if we sat down and wrote down our review and then went back and then edited it to, oh, actually, you know what, actually that. So we, we lost a bit of refinement and we lost a bit of comprehensiveness, uh, but we gained, um, yeah, a dynamism from having from having a conversation. I think that's exactly right. I think that there's some like detail and fine-grained responsiveness, particularly at the level of writing, that I think is an important part of a well-done peer review is actually just helping people massage their writing a little bit, um, which like, I don't know, we could have a conversation if we want about the editorial function that peer review plays because mm. it's, I think, a weakness of the current, um, particularly article peer review process is that there is actually no editor who at any point just helps you make your writing better. So the question of whether you get that intervention just happens on which, you know, depends on which peer reviewer you happen to draw. Um, but that is really hard to do out loud, like fine grained mm. editorial feedback on writing is hard to do out yeah, loud and, yeah, yeah. and doesn't lend itself to the medium. But it would be so boring. Page page two. Consider changing. Yeah. But we arrived at more interesting interventions into the larger arguments than either one of us would have independently 
sure. because we could bounce our ideas off each other. Yeah. Yeah. That discursiveness oh. was so important yeah. and added so much to it. I thought. So Laurie, did you stipulate then at, at the beginning, not for Hannah and, and Ian, not to write out the template or do an annotation on the, on the piece of work? Was it more just make a few notes about what you want to ask me? Because if, if you, you could have asked these guys to sort of just do their normal reviews as they would do as if it was a written piece and then we'll talk about it. But that's slightly different from saying, oh, we'll actually do the peer review, you know, in, in this process, in just the conversation. Yeah, well, the three of us had a discussion ahead of time, at least via email, you know, how would we like for this to go? Um, and one of the options was to come up with a series of questions and we started talking about, you know, what are some normal peer review questions? And then I thought, well, hang on, we actually have some questions that we've asked our, our reviewers of chapters to look at. So let's use that at least as a template. So uh, um, I shared that review template with Hannah and Ian, and we tweaked it somewhat so that it would be more so talking points for a podcast. So when I produce a podcast, as many of us here do, we, we write out our talking points. What do we want to hit? And in somewhat of an order, but of course, as we get into conversation, that order might get thrown out the window, but at least we have the talking points to work from. So I kind of treated it like that, you know, that, that there were certain talking points I thought were important to hit some of the, the peer review questions that were quite important and, and made sure that we got to that, but allowed for a lot of conversation in and amongst that. Great. And how did it, did it work in terms of coming up with points that of disagreement or moving into areas where you, where you're saying, saying to Laurie or you're suggesting that this, this actually needs to be changed or needs to be looked at again. You know, you can make suggestions when you're writing stuff down. And as you said, you don't want to get too much into that. Is there a sense of um, backward and forward on that? Or is there any moments where it's kind of like, no, actually, I think it's clear this needs to be changed because of these reasons? Well, it was more so that a fight almost broke out between the two peer reviewers. (laughs) Yeah, no. (laughs) The dynamic of Ian and I uh, going totally rogue while Lori desperately tries to impose some sort of order or structure on what's (laughs) happening is is a familiar one. But I do think, like, I think we just, I don't think we felt fettered by doing it out loud Mm -hmm. to like not actually have the conversations we need to to have and apply pressure to the ideas. I feel like it was less that we felt obliged to be like falsely positive and more that there were some kinds of feedback that were easier to engage with than others. Sure. I have, by the way, marked up the physical doc. Like I, (laughs) I have, I haven't, an annotated version of the article that I will be sending Lori in addition yeah, to yeah, the, yeah. the audio feedback that's just like, I don't quite get this point, right? It's got the granular stuff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, but, but that's the question then. Does it all, is it always going to require that? And this, this is a, an addendum or a parallel element of peer review. It could never be standalone. Is that, is that kind of what you're saying? I think it depends on whether you've got an editor, honestly. I just right. have gone through the process of publishing a book with Wilfrid Laurier University Press, who is also going to be the publisher for this mm. edited collection. And uh, Siobhan McMenemy was my editor for that book and is a very experienced, well-trained editor who worked with me very closely on form and language and like my weird writing tics and how to get rid of them. And so when it came to the point of having peer review conversations, which I did have a number of them quite informally and out loud with people, we could really talk about that sort of higher end stuff because there was somebody who is actually trained in editing text, working with me to edit the text. Mm. And That is, like I said, that's kind of a gap in a lot of peer review. And it was a wonderful process to work with somebody who is just like, let's talk about how bad you are at (laughs) summarizing quotations (laughs) or whatever. Um, And then that could be sort of divided out from the sort of 
like meaty ideas. Gross. Oh, I'm so sorry. <laughs> Apologies. I need you to put a content warning on the beginning of this episode because I said meaty ideas. <laughs> so yeah, we did it. We did. We did have like the discussions on the ideas, and and I and if those were, I think the really good parts. I think as well because we were we were thinking out loud a little bit and riffing over each other. But we did also have concrete suggestions mm-hmm. on how to change the text. We okay. we suggested how. Sh- Laurie should rewrite her introduction and her conclusion and I suggested rewriting one part and then Hannah said no that's the best part and like so we actually did actually talk about the 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 way it was written as well mm-hmm. both in terms of the structure and, and the style in, in in different parts so there was a little bit of that stuff but uh, yeah not so much but I mean like we have a document it was meant to be a shared document that we were both meant to leave notes in but we didn't in the end share our thoughts beforehand. We kept them separate. And um but I didn't write up the the my I comments or ideas in anything more than bullet Same. points. And those were really only meant to be consumed by me because I obviously I I, I read the text, I had the notes, I had yep. the idea just to remind me of what I of what I wanted to what I wanted to say. But um I guess it's akin in some ways to giving comments on a paper at a symposium but only to a certain degree um, because it was more than that it was like a like a, a much more um considered and in-depth um, version of that with a bit of extra i don't know sure so what might be the difference then say for example you've talked a little bit there about you know you guys are working on a book together so you know each other Ian, do you think that this would be a different process entirely if it was not blind peer review, but, you know, I don't know you peer review, peer reviewers kind of thing? Yes, completely. Um, because, well, no, because because this is this is actually, you know, let's put it in academic language, you know, interpersonal relationships uh, mediate the way in which we can and and, and do um, comment on text. And I think it happens in all walks of life that we somehow we um, merge together whether or not we like the person with how we appreciate the quality of their work, right? So like if you meet someone at a conference and they're a complete dickhead to you, then, you know, <laughs> when you read their text, you find lots of faults with it, mm-hmm. you know? And um, and so it's just like, you know, because we're humans, right? So it definitely, it's definitely there. So like, you know, prior um, relationships definitely mediate the the process to, to quite some degree. Having said that, if you had somebody who was a good host they should be able to do that with strangers as well right they should be able to they should be able to make the conversation work in a way in which people didn't um become the stereotypical peer reviewer too who just becomes a bit of a tool but actually to make it constructive along the way so it would be interesting to to see that with you know you know imagine if you didn't know who your audio peer reviewers were going to be and then they just appeared you know like surprise you know and then and then you and then you had that that would be quite something and that would maybe push it closer to being something like the peer review process that we're used to or or a defense or but you bring up a good point about the host Mm -hmm. and in in this in this case it was a, a sort of almost a strange model because I was the one being peer reviewed and I was also acting as the host guiding the conversation which is a really bizarre um, way to approach it. It made sense in this particular context for the three of us, but as a larger model for how this might be done, <laughs> I, I wouldn't recommend it, you know? Yeah. yeah. I mean, it, it raises the interesting question of the author being present or the author not being present and the possibility of responsiveness. Um, I just went through an audio peer review with Kairos, which is a, a digital journal that publishes web texts. Mm-hmm. And they are publishing a piece that Stacey Copeland and I have done, which is a, a like a three-part podcast miniseries sort of to be published as an article. And they decided to make the peer review an audio response where they got together. They already peer review they already do open peer review and they already do um, conversational peer review. So those are already how they respond to all texts. Um, and so they were like, well, we're all going to get together and peer review this thing. So let's just record our conversation. And then they sent us an audio file and a transcript that was like, here is the conversation we had about your piece. And it brought in a lot of the strengths of what we have already described 
um, in terms of the conversational nature of it and the possibility of sort of riffing off ideas and building and arriving at interesting conclusions that are more than the sum of their parts. Um, but it didn't have that sort of really interesting thing where, where you're just talking straight to the author. And that, I think, was good in some ways, right? We didn't have an opportunity to, like, get defensive if we would have. But in other ways, like, it's really neat to just get to ask the author, like, what were you trying to do here? Like, let me try to understand what the actual project of this piece is so that I can help you make it more the thing you want it to be rather than the thing I have decided it ought to be, which is often the case with anonymized peer review. Absolutely. Yeah. 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 Um, in, in terms of what, a little bit picking up on what Hannah's just said there, in terms of there are ways of using audio to peer review, as you've just said, that are not necessarily a podcast. So I'm wondering whether there is a big difference, say, for example, for all of you, in the knowledge that this is going to go out to an audience that is already there and listens to this podcast feed, you know, rather than like, say, for example, you could have done this and just recorded it for Laurie's archiving, you know, purposes. So does that knowledge, you know, change anything for you that there is there is going to be an audience for for this, even <laughs> no matter how small it might be? You know? For sure. I'd say absolutely it does. Um we, we each of us had to be aware as we were having the discussion to uh, to invite the audience into what we were talking about. In other words, illustrate, we couldn't just say, oh, that thing you wrote on page two, you know, I felt the same way about what you said about Joe Rogan. I mean, and, and I feel that the three of us, each being podcasters in our own right, had that innate sense to sort of say, um, to explain what it was that we were referring to in enough detail that an audience could follow along, even if they hadn't read the paper. So that was important to me in setting out to do this, that it couldn't just be an inside discussion that if you hadn't read the paper, you didn't have it right in front of you, that, that you wouldn't get anything out of listening. I mean, what, what would be the point of making it a podcast if there wasn't that awareness of the listener? That's my perspective. I don't know if Ian and Hannah have other thoughts on that. Uh, yeah, I mean, I just think that we are always thinking about audience when we are producing anything, um, that like our, the nature by which we produce discourse is always shaped by our sense, correct or incorrect of who the audience is. Um, and so it didn't feel weird to me, but that is because I more often than not am speaking out loud to an audience, um, mm -hmm. these days like podcasting or teaching, right? Just like doing these things all the time. Um, but I think the positive way in which the audience, the like awareness of the presence of the audience influenced me is that I had to know that I could explain the points that I was making adequately, not only to Lori, but to a possible a possible listenership of non-experts um which i think sort of paused me in the almost ritualistic name dropping of peer review right that thing where you're like mm, well you haven't really engaged with the work of so and so so is this really that like i couldn't just do that i couldn't just be like talk about this person this person and this person i had to actually be ready to like explain what those people think and why i thought that would enhance your paper. And that was helpful to me. That was super helpful to me as a so-called, you know, a supposed expert in the field as well. Like that, that when you had to elucidate what you meant when you talked about, I don't know, for example, you mentioned McLuhan's hot and cold media. And I know what those are, but by you explaining them in being aware of an audience that may not know, it also just helped me to think more clearly about what it was you were referring mm -hmm. to as opposed to the name dropping that we tend to do. Oh, well, you really need to refer to McLuhan here. And, and you might get that in a written response and you'd think, oh, well, what part of <laughs> McLuhan and in, in, in what way is she thinking of that? But yeah, so I found that it, perhaps the, the act of doing this in front of an audience is actually more useful, more illustrative for, for the person being reviewed. Hmm. I was also thinking about audience then and about audio feedback in other sessions other settings and i think we've probably all 
either been subjected to or witnessed um, public maulings by scholar, scholar on scholar violence, you know, mm. um, and we've, <laughs> we've, you know, we've, we've probably seen that in different places where people do it. And then it's when the audience is, is just the peers um, very often, right? So it's right. like maybe in a de- departmental setting or, you know, or the, or like a smaller conference where everyone around sort of mm. knows everyone and people are and like and it's and it's a real nasty thing very often to see so because this is the audience is a little bit unknown i don't know if you know who the audience is for this um this podcast i'm guessing it's podcast scholars so it is actually maybe it is that right so it is basically yeah. you know the few hundred people in the world who are interested in this as an academic um pursuit right and so probably most of the people listening to this have heard of Hannah because she's the most famous person and, <laughs> and sorry <laughs> low bar yeah, low yeah, bar extremely um, low oh, he had to get a singer in there he had to get a singer <laughs> in there but, but it's speak but, for no. yourself man <laughs> So basically, no one's heard of me, but they've heard of they might have heard of them, and uh, and but you know, but I mean, so it's, it, but it's a small world where, and so it is, it is still the sense that like the audience may or may not have already formed opinions on Laurie's scholarship um, prior to hearing this, or or because they've heard her speak somewhere or produce something and so on. So it's not an it's not this unknown audience then, right? It is it is a slightly mm. known audience who. So even though we were explaining stuff, and it was of course it was right that Hannah did explain like you know hot and cold media and stuff maybe 95% of people listening to this would be like yeah okay we know what that is right um but 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 the inclination was to do so in case other people were listening and maybe sure. that is trying to then basically produce something which is more inclusive right and maybe that's a good thing and maybe and maybe better than giving this feedback in the setting of of a department or a conference or a seminar it's like okay this is potentially also hopefully maybe serving as a model to younger people than ourselves like this is actually how you give feedback in a constructive way um which isn't always displayed because we never get taught how to do peer review right yeah the first time when you got asked to peer review you know you just get sent you know you just get sent an email like, oh, here you are, go peer review. And here's some vague guidelines, you know? So this is actually maybe a demonstration of, of how to do it as well. In that sense, it is another example of the way that um, well-done scholarly podcasting always has a little bit of the pedagogical to it. Mm-hmm. And that when we think about peer review as another form of pedagogical discourse, rather than gatekeeping or policing boundaries, we produce better peer review. Mm-hmm. Oh, and mm-hmm. I remember what I was going to say, and that Ian brought up this idea that we're not trained on how to give peer review, or you know, there's no models for it. And sometimes the model is a really broken one in terms of um, the expectation, perhaps amongst young scholars when they're asked to first peer review, is to show off what mm. they know or what they think they can, what holes they feel they can. You know, if you don't find a hole, then you mustn't be doing it properly. And so the the tendency is to that's try what to she find- said. <laughs> Yes, Lori. That was good. That was good. I walked straight into that one, didn't I? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. All right. So <laughs> we'll put aside the talk of holes for now. Um, but y- y- the other thing that comes to mind is the idea that that young scholars might be even intimidated to ask colleagues to have a conversation about their work. I've heard that intimidation expressed in various, you know, online groups that I'm part of that have a lot of young scholars and young professors. Um, and so these conversations don't necessarily come naturally to scholars, um, and perhaps modeling it as a podcast almost formalizes it in a way that might even Hmm. make it more comfortable for new scholars to engage. Hmm. So in other words, would a young scholar go and tap an older scholar on the, on the shoulder and say, you know what, I'm really unsure about this, or I'd really love to have a conversation with you about this. Some will not. I know that there are ones that will not because it, it, they feel it demonstrates vulnerability mm-hmm. uh, or that they don't know what they're doing. And so, but I'm wondering whether having a structure in a podcast could enable that or does that make it worse? I don't know, but it's a thought. Um, related to that, I mean, um, 
shit, I don't know how to do this in a way that doesn't make me sound like one of those academics that talks about their own work. But I did spend the last year or so interviewing scholars who make podcasts um, for a book that I'm writing, written, I've written. And a lot of the feedback that came back was that <laughs> Hannah's laughing at me. There's nothing I could do. Like, no, I'm laughing anyway. at you because you were, you were trying no. to not just say. Anyway, so I just wrote a book about podcasts. Yeah. And the point yeah. is, like... Which is I, coming out. Which is coming out, yeah. <laughs> um, which you can find a link to in the show notes. No, you can't. Um, <laughs> I'm just getting lots of messages back from all the authors I quoted telling me I spelt their name wrong. Fucking so embarrassing. Anyway, the um, the... Yeah, the point was that a lot of people, they said when they approached younger people to be on their podcast, like PhD students or, you know, postdocs or whatever, there was a lot of hesitancy amongst them to come and talk about their work on a podcast because mm -hmm. there's a lot of worry about always being right in public. Yes. Right? But, but when they did come on, usually they were much better prepared than the more senior scholars who say yes to talk about everything and just turn up and wing it, right? Mm. So um, so there's a tension there and that maybe this can be a way, like if we start to get more used to the idea that we can have a conversation, record it and put it out there and we don't have to be perfect. I mean, we corrected ourselves during the process when we were when we were um, making the the podcast last week right so when we were doing that like at one point i said oh yeah you've got no mention of merchandise as a para as a paratext inside the text but actually laurie did i just i didn't read it properly or you know it was it was like in a table and i maybe didn't go through the table and everyone said oh she did okay that's fine like and you know people get very nervous about being wrong in public but we shouldn't right because you know like we're not it's, we are actually just discussing things and people make mistakes all the time so i guess in a way of normalizing owning small mistakes and moving forward is also a very healthy thing to um promote inside yeah our scholarly work it also takes a lot of uncertainty out of it for the person being reviewed like if ian had said oh well you know you didn't mention this thing uh, you know, I might have thought, well, I did. Does he mean that I need to go into more detail about it? Or And also just to be able to ask, like, what do you mean by that? You know, when a peer reviewer simply writes down, you need to blah, 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 or you didn't do this, or you haven't explained this, you're able to actually ask, well, how could I explain that better? Mm -hmm. Or sometimes a peer reviewer will leave a comment, and it's just sort of almost of interest to them, like, oh, this thing you have written here, uh, you it reminds me of this other thing that might just be a comment that they leave or, you know, maybe you should consider this, but you don't know how important they consider that to be in terms mm -hmm. of the revision. And so, for example, I was able to ask Hannah when we were talking about one particular thing, you, you know, how important would that be to a revised version of this chapter, do you think? And, you know, you were able to say, well, I don't think it's all that important in the grand scheme of things. So that gives me some reassurance in terms of how many of these comments do I have to take extremely seriously? What are the priorities? You know, what, what, what has to be done in order for it to move forward? Mm -hmm. Great. Um, so you guys are all writing a book together about podcasting and peer review. So I just wondered if there is anything that happened in the, you know, in the, in the previous episode, in the peer review process that has made you kind of think differently or thought, oh, okay, that, you know, we need to look down that avenue or whether anything related to like what Hannah said before in terms of the possibilities for peer review podcasting in the grander scheme of university structures and publishing. Well, I don't want to lift the curtain too much. We didn't record it last week. We actually recorded it just two hours, <laughs> <laughs> two hours ago. So I still have to process, uh, sure. process everything. But I would say the need for further experimentation with different models and actually just trying them mm -hmm. uh, is something which, uh, which, which I think we should um, uh, do uh, in the process of writing that book and, and of learning more about it. Because this is one model and it might be tweaked in different ways and there might be other models that work in, in other ways. Like it's not a one size fits all um, thing. Maybe it works well for a book chapter, a shortish book chapter. Maybe it works less well for a 10,000 word article um, where we might need more time or so on and so forth, right? So I think that basically to develop and test different models is what I took out of it. Yeah. And this model in particular is a step on the way to a text-based publication. Uh, mm -hmm. And so when you asked earlier about, um, you know, does it address all of the, uh, in this audio format, does it address all of the things you need it to address? 
It may or may not for a text-based publication, but if the quote-unquote publication was meant to be a podcast, in other words, when we get to the point of thinking of a podcast itself as being the scholarly output, period, full stop, without having to legitimize itself by being published in a journal or being published in a text-based format, if the podcast itself is the ultimate outcome of the scholarship, then surely a a podcast-based or an audio-based peer review serves 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 that purpose quite well so in other words you don't have to pick apart the 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 mechanics of the writing um and you know you shouldn't have a a comma in that particular citation etc so so i think that that would be another model to look at is when the scholarship itself is a podcast that Mm -hmm. this would work quite well i would think Mm Mm-hmm. It made me think of, I had a conversation with uh, Chris Friend recently on the Hybrid Pedagogy podcast, and we were talking about ungrading, which is a alternative evaluation practice that is being taken up in sort of education studies, pedagogy studies, um, which is primarily about taking a step back from traditional models of evaluation so that we can actually ask ourselves more intentional and thoughtful questions about how students learn and what we actually want them to be doing and what the purpose of different assignments and activities actually is. And I love the idea of like, applying the logics of ungrading to other practices in academia that have become so deeply naturalized that we aren't really thinking about why we do them the way that we do them. And so an activity like this, for me, its biggest benefit is in that kind of like ungrading peer review, like taking that step back and being like, okay, what's the point of this? Like, why do we bother to peer review stuff in the first place? And what are the actual functions we would like peer review to be addressing? And how are those actually deeply specific to different disciplines, different media, different kinds of conversations? Um, Like the needs don't necessarily transfer from one context to another. And so that opportunity to experiment is also an opportunity to like denaturalize a little bit and really revisit the whole question of like, why is it great to think with other people? Sure. Fantastic. Well, the final question I want to ask is just for Laurie, actually. And that is, so how do you feel about your piece going forward? Confident now that you are going in the right direction and you're going to be able to complete on time and all of that stuff? When's the deadline, Dario? Yeah, when is the deadline? Well, Laurie can set her own deadline, can't she? You know what I mean? Yeah, that's a great question. I mean... It was really a privilege to be able to have that conversation and to get insights. And these two definitely pointed me in some directions that I hadn't considered. Um, And then, of course, there's the trepidation around, oh, do I have to undertake like new directions now? I really just kind of wanted to put this to bed. There's always that. But um, yeah, I'm feeling quite confident that I have what I need to move forward. I'm going to refer back to that recording. I'll go through it again and process it a little further. But I think there was some some great advice that I can I can. It was very practical too. Some of it was very very practical advice that I can apply. So yeah, I, I'm feeling I'm feeling really good about it. Yeah. Fantastic. Well, uh, yeah, look forward to uh, reading the next iteration. Uh, Hannah and Ian, thanks so much for taking so much time to to do this. Um, it's been really interesting sort of listening to your um, responses in terms of the process itself, but what, you know, the wide implications of what this could mean for podcasting as peer reviewing going forward. So there are certainly some fascinating questions for academic podcasters to grapple with in terms of form, aim and motivations for scholarly podcasting. Adding to the conversation, we've got our regular recommendations engine, Jess Smith who is going to talk particularly about two scholarly podcasts. Hi, my name is Jess Schmidt. Since the topic for this week's episode is peer review, our first recommendation was helpfully provided by Lori um, because, you know, at the present time, there just aren't (laughs) very many podcasts that are specifically created for the purpose of peer review. 
Um, obviously, there's a lot of things in the works to help change that, and hopefully really soon, like the Amplify Podcast Network, for instance, and Lori has a podcast of her own dedicated to open peer review, and I would say that progress in this field has been happening for a while, and it's just been a bit slow, but at least it is happening, so we have that to look forward to in the future. That being said, I do, from the help of Lori, have a peer review episode for us to listen to for our review this week. Um, And then for my second recommendation, we're going to go a little bit away from that and just look at an academic podcast. And that was also a bit hard to define, but we're going to get to that in a minute. Let's start with recommendation number one. So... Recommendation number one, decidedly made for peer review. Uh, this was produced by Ted Rekin, and he submitted a 35-minute piece to the McGill Journal of Education in 2015. He calls it an audio essay or a series of reflections. He produced this as a discussion on the idea of mapping the fit between research and multimedia, a podcast exploration of the place of multimedia within slash as scholarship. 2015 is not, you know, pre-pandemic, but shockingly, this still reads as like quite contemporary, frankly. In very 2015 fashion, he specifies that you need to listen over headphones, which I think is something that we don't do anymore necessarily. You just kind of assume that people are going to listen how they listen. And something that I really love about what he does just on a technical point is that he has an audio bed underlaid that is him walking around in the woods behind his house. Uh, And he calls this like sort of a foundational space that he visits with his dog. And I think that this completely highlights what you get out of podcasting that you don't necessarily get out of standard, you know, digital or paper-based peer review, which is that there is the ability to have a creative influence in not just what somebody is reading as in you created what they're reading, but how they are engaging with it, which is, you know, I think the core of what podcasting is, is that you have more of a hand in that as a creator. So I thought that that was just amazing. Um, He also has some really interesting discussion around multimedia and constraint and the legitimacy. And he talks about how the adoption of tech in schools is a lot slower than it tends to be like sort of at large in society, Um, which I, you know, just finished a master's degree last year. And I tend to agree this idea of how the skill set of academia needs to adjust to the digital world and how there's this huge shift of going from being consumers to producers, which I think generally is just the way that we are, you know, interacting with content these days. Um, So it's interesting to have this brought up even as early as 2015 in an academic context. So anyway, if any of that's interesting to you, it's jam-packed with some really interesting ideas um, and definitely pertains to what the topic is this week. So definitely check that out. And then recommendation number two, I really struggled even with the much broader topic of just a podcast that is scholarly or academic. And uh, I think that the problem I was having is, you know, like what makes something quote unquote academic? Does an academic need to produce it? Can you interview academics and call it an academic podcast then? Does it need to be tied to a paper? Does it need to be tied to a course? Does it need to be tied to a specific field of study? Like how academic-y does it have to be before it's considered to be academic? Um, So I just had a lot of thoughts in my mind. And I think that sort of is one of the problems that the peer review podcast domain is struggling with on the whole. So I know I'm not alone. Uh, But anyway, with all that in mind, I went to Google as is usually the case. And I ended up at a podcast that I was actually already familiar with, which was a nice surprise, which is Ologies by Allie Ward. And I have listened kind of on and off in the last little while. I'm not always all about science podcasts, but when I am into it, this is one of the podcasts I go to. And I like it because it is a kind of a selective, curated, and like passion-driven deep dive into one person's field of study and one person's like the interest that like subsumes your whole career in life. And I just, as like the science aspects of it are also fascinating, but I just think that the people are 
even more so fascinating. And it's, to me, that is what makes it an academic podcast is Allie Ward is talking to people who sometimes it's, they've written academic books on it. Sometimes they teach on it. Sometimes they're the foremost scholar on this. And then other times they are somebody who doesn't have any of those, you know, quote unquote academic affiliations, but they just care about this thing so much that they are the expert in spite of that. Um, so yeah, definitely give that a listen if that tickles your fancy and give a listen to the Ted Rekin piece also, if you're interested in that. And, uh, those are the recommendations for this week. So happy listening. So Dario just raises some really interesting questions about what makes a scholarly podcast. As she was looking for one, she thought, you know, does it need to be produced by an academic? Can you interview an academic and call it an academic podcast? Does it need to be tied to a paper in particular or to a course or to a specific field of study? All of these questions are really interesting ones. And um, w- what are your thoughts on that? Have you, have you ever attempted to pin down what it means to be a scholarly podcast? Yeah, I mean, I, th- I think really a, l- a lot of us are writing about that in the book. You know, a lot of the authors of of defining themselves, maybe even implicitly rather than explicitly. Um, I mean, I'd refer people to to Mac Hargood's piece, and, and Mac's coming on the show in a few weeks' time to talk about it, about scholarly podcasting and audio academia, and mm-hmm. he makes some interesting kind of uh, taxonomized differentiations between you know, very much podcasting and just audio that academics use, whether it's, say, for example, just recording a a lecture or recording feedback for students and what the differentiation is between that and what we would generically in mainstream culture now call a podcast. So I think there's some interesting questions there. And and he, he very much makes a sort of differentiation between types of scholarly podcasts. So, for example, you know, um, the very familiar NPR use of academics in their journalistic podcasts to underpin points that are being made, to use academics to kind of drive a narrative. And that feeds into the kind of high production values and, and narrative structures of those kinds of podcasts. And then there are academic podcasts that the academics actually produce themselves, which you know, maybe across the board tend to have lower production values, but they speak very much in the in the argo or the lexicon that assumes that the audience will be academics. Right. And then there's something I think that's in, you know, in between. And and I think that, you know, the cinematologist, we try to be like that. I think his Phantom Power podcast tries to sort of utilize sound design and be an interesting listen in and of itself, but then embed the research in interesting sonic ways. Yeah. If I'm not mistaken, Mac characterizes those podcasts in terms of lo-fi and hi-fi or am I? Yeah, that's yeah, right. Yeah. So um, something a little more lo-fi is just kind of turning on your mic and speaking. In fact, um, <laughs> the uh, peer review uh, reflections that we just did is definitely lo-fi because I forgot to use my nice microphone. I was speaking into it the whole time, <laughs> oh, yeah. but you are hearing me on the uh, horrible, <laughs> horrible <laughs> built-in microphone. So definitely a lo-fi scholarly podcast there, I think. But yeah, so that, that'll be really interesting to hear you interview Mac about his taxonomy. And, and speaking of taxonomies, uh, I, I feel like there's plenty of room for us to try to grapple with some kind of categorization or characterizations of the different types of quote-unquote scholarly podcasts. Yeah, and I think a lot of it is related to the idea of what higher education or what universities deem as academic. You know, there is this sort of sense that there has to be a uh, an identifiable process of methodological approach Mm -hmm. that defines where the research is situated. And I think that's one of the problems, certainly that I've grappled with over the years in terms of wanting my podcasting to speak for itself Mm -hmm. rather than it being attached um, or grounded back in a written article. And this is, you know, arguments I've had with my university and and, and sort of said, you know, the, the, the research is within the, the the construction of the podcast in a sonic sense it doesn't require to refer back to here's the list of you know academic citations and stuff like that but in 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 many ways that that is a requirement of of academic research mm-hmm. you know what i mean mm-hmm. and that's why we're doing peer review for example so that it goes for, through this process of grounding and association with a sense that that there is a 
um, a judgment that can be contextualized within what is considered academic knowledge presentation, let's say. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. It will be interesting to see how quickly we can get to the point where a, a a scholarly podcast does not need to be connected in some way to a written piece in order for it to be considered legitimate by the academy. And you know, you and I certainly aren't the only people who are kind of rattling the cage about this type of thing. There are um, a lot of our colleagues are podcasting and feel that what is going into their podcast is is absolutely scholarship. And I couldn't agree more. But I want to circle back to um, Jess's first recommendation. So she looked at Ted Rekin's audio essay, or basically what might be called a podcast, that contains some of his academic thinking in the form of a monologue. Um, And one of the fascinating things about Ted Rekin's recording, as Jess mentioned, is that underneath his monologue, um, he's layered in a soundscape that he recorded while out walking his dog in the forest. And he says the forest is behind his house and it's where he goes to do a lot of his scholarly thinking. And so, first of all, I would like to have a forest behind my house where I could go to do my scholarly yeah. thinking. So, and it's, it also strikes me as very, very British Columbia. So I don't, if you've ever been to BC, Canada, you know, the forests are, are huge and lush. And uh, yeah, I'm a little bit jealous for Lots sure. Lots of thinky spaces there. A very thinky space, yeah. But um, let me play a clip. Here's what Ted Rekin says about that. What you're hearing in the background, and if I'll pause for a moment so you can hear that. What you're hearing in the background is a kind of... um, Uh, audio bed, as I call it, which is the sound of me uh, bringing you along and and presenting to you my presence um, in in the forest behind the place where I live, which is where I would go to think about many of the ideas that, uh, that you're hearing in this podcast or in this audio file. And so much as we have foundational works that underlie our thinking as scholars, as writers, as authors, there's also foundational spaces that I think we occupy. And I go to the forest. You'll hear me also talking on occasion in the background to my dog that I take with me because he and I uh, out there occupy a space that's uh, not digital but, but very real, very grounded where I find myself connected to a much more physical web of life amongst the millions of plants and trees and animals and insects that that make up the forest. So while we connect digitally via the internet, I I put that audio bed of me walking through the forest as a way to, to point back to the kind of physical preeminence, I guess we could say, the kind of physical connection that we have with the planet that we are a part of, that we are born onto and and eventually move off of into some sort of recycled existence. So while we communicate and live a lot of our time in the digital world, there's also a physical world that lays beneath all of that and thus the footsteps that you hear. Yeah, so the reason I wanted to play that clip is because I'm so fascinated by the concept of of how he says that the same way that we have foundational works that underpin our our scholarship and our thinking, um, he says that there are also foundational spaces that we occupy. And so I kind of had a little bit of a lightning bolt and thought, I would like to clear my schedule for an entire day just to sit and have a think on that very concept. I mean, it brings Mm. up the idea of, uh, you know, we talk about podcasts as being an embodiment of the voice, whereas text-based scholarship, you know, doesn't have that physicality and that presence and embodiment. And he's taking it almost a step further to say that the land that we're sitting on or the spaces in which we do our thinking and and conduct our scholarship and knowledge creation um, should, could, should be part of how we present our scholarship. I found that fascinating. Mm, yeah, it's almost a phenomenological point, isn't it? It's kind of like that idea of experiences grounded in the the embodiment of our experience you know or th- mm-hmm. did i repeat that you know what i mean it's that, that, that it's that sense that you can't i suppose it's it's an anti-descartes idea that the mind and the 
body are separate and our consciousness sort of exists somewhere outside of the body. Actually, our experience is grounded within space. You know what I mean? The space mm -hmm. of our body in the space of the world. And yeah, I mean, I, I, I guess, you know, on a really simple level in terms of podcasting, there is a difference, I think, between being in the same room with somebody and being remote like this. I mean, we all, we have to do it remotely because, you know, you're in Canada and I'm in the UK. So we deal with that. But then I think actually if two people are in the same space, then that that does have an impact on on the conversation. But when it comes to just sort of thinking and allowing yourself that space of thought, I think, yeah, it's interesting that he goes to the forest, but I think that that's because... He wants to give himself the headspace mm -hmm. away from the computer or earphones mm -hmm. or distractions of even listening to something. It's kind of like, I, mean, I don't think we do. I mean, I certainly don't do, do that enough, you know, carve out a space where I can kind of like think, you know, I'm just going to train my thoughts on this mm -hmm. particular subject. And I'm sure it's, it will definitely help the development of, of your thought processes yeah. when you're trying to do something specific. We don't tend to sort of put an emphasis on sequestration as, as mm. scholars in, in, in modern times, right? To sort of retreat from the world and be able to do that kind of thinking. Well, the, so The productivity narrative is a very kind of mm -hmm. like surveilled thing. We have to be seen to be doing things. Yeah. But if you yeah. write or you speak, you have to think about it. So surely yeah. if you want to say something, you know, useful or profound or whatever, or well thought through you need to allow yourself the space to be able to do that but you know the university is as bad as any environment i think at saying no we just just produce just produce just produce yeah yeah you can't write unless you've had space to think and mm. thinking often happens when you're out walking your dog in the forest right Indeed. so yeah yeah it has to be seen as part of the process for sure um there's another aspect to uh ted reekin's podcast that he put out um in the same issue in which ted reekin's podcast was uh was published in the mcgill journal of education there was a related written piece as well and it was a transcript of a discussion among three peers of ted reekin's giving their thoughts on his audio essay. So in other words, they listened to his recording yeah, and then they got together to do a peer review in the form of a roundtable discussion. Now, as far as I know, this one wasn't published as a, a recording, even though they were having a conversation, but they did publish it as a transcript. So it kind of sits as the discussion happened. Um, and according to the abstract, the discussion begins with the question of blind peer review in the shifting landscape of multimedia publishing and concludes with reflections on knowledge creation in today's academic culture. So um, it's well worth checking out if the intersection of podcasting and knowledge creation is something that listeners are interested in, which I assume they probably are if they're listening to us right now. Indeed. Uh, but I think that Ted Regan's audio essay or the podcast, I think that might be the first ever peer-reviewed podcast. It is the earliest one that I have come across in in, in my searches, and that was um, done in 2014 and published in 2015, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, so that might be the one. Yeah, I, I, I've never heard of, of anyone doing it before. Me and Neil did a version of that for one of our podcasts, which was back in probably 2017 but then mm -hmm. obviously Hannah I can't remember when when hers was was for secret feminist agenda yeah it was a little after that it yeah. was a little after that wasn't it yeah mm -hmm. um but yeah it's it, it it's interesting to see where this goes and whether maybe there is a um I mean it's a very early stages even like the one that we've just heard with that that you've done whether there is any sort of uptake outside of the circles of ourselves, you know what I mean? The people who <laughs> yes. consider themselves podcast, podcast study scholars. I mean, say, for example, if a, if a publishing house picked it up and, and used it on, on something that wasn't very specifically podcast related, that's when you would know that it had found a, a sort of uh, a life beyond our particular kind of circles. Right, yeah. So to be, to be continued as this unfolds. The, the ongoing saga of uh, peer-reviewed podcasting. Having having had a few kind of days, weeks to to think about it, have you have you sort of uh, thought more about the process itself? Not necessarily about your piece, which obviously you're going to be working mm -hmm. on, but but how well it worked and and what you got out of it. 
Yeah, I have. I reflected on it a bit and um, a lot, actually. And the conversation was really useful. And I still got the sense that there were other things that might have been brought up um, via text. Mm. Because as you get talking, as you do, you you start to go down alternate pathways of thinking, which is kind of the point of, of scholarship and to invite that kind of thinking. Um, but in terms of the piece itself that was under review, I feel like they probably had more to say in terms of certain specific things. And it's yeah, difficult yeah, yeah. To, to really kind of get into the specific details um, that would need to be polished in a written piece in a podcast format. So again, that speaks to the idea of you know, maybe if a podcast, if a peer review podcast is not centered around a written work, then that peer review might be perhaps more effective or, mm. um, yeah, 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 yeah. right. So maybe going forward, you and I could experiment with, um, alternate ways of doing peer review on podcasts and maybe it, sure. it doesn't need to be centered around a written text. Yeah. I mean, I think maybe that's something that we can do in the future in terms of listening to a particular episode or piece of work like an audio essay you know something that has a sort of scholarly connection and having some kind of discussion a, a, around that mm-hmm. i mean i'm always thinking about what what is podcast reviewing you know what is that i mean you you know you you can read some of it in the in the newspapers these days they do have a podcast reviewer in the guardian for example mm-hmm. but on a broader sense sort of using podcasting to kind of analyze other podcasts i think is is something that just is very rarely done still yeah. these days, which is quite interesting considering now, you know, we, we, we sort of think about podcasting being in the mainstream, but yeah, mm-hmm. definitely looking forward. There's, there's avenues to go down. Yeah. So, well, we've just, um, we've just made ourselves a big to-do list in terms of uh, future episodes <laughs> to cover. So, yeah. So I want to thank everyone for tuning into the podcast studies podcast, and you're always welcome to peer review us by leaving a comment with your thoughts and your feedback. So you'll find all our contact information on our website at podpage.com slash podcast studies podcast. Great. Yeah. So until next time, thanks very much for listening. Take care. Bye. Bye.